0: So today we're continuing the series Beyond Good Intentions, walking through the book of Acts and seeing how the very earliest Christians, followers of Christ, known as the way, how how they experienced God, how they loved one another and loved their enemies, how they faced threats and violence and an evil government who was literally trying to kill them. And we're identifying these themes, these practices, these relationships that were really, really important to those early Christians and asking the question, if they were so important to them, Shouldn't they be important to us? Themes like the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the role of baptism and prayer. Today we're looking at another one of those themes that was very, very central to the book of Acts. It's the idea of conversion. It runs through the entire book, and yet it's a little bit tricky. Did you know that the word conversion doesn't actually even really appear in the Bible? I mean, if you do a a Bible gateway search, word search, it'll show up in some of the little titles of sections, but it's not actually in the text. Even converts or convert only appears a handful of times in the whole book. It's really more of a concept, an idea, a process, the details of which are outlined throughout the New Testament, but they're details that the church, faithful followers of God over the generations have disagreed and come to very different conclusions on. And we're not going to figure it all out this week. I mean, that's why we do church next week and the following week and then the week after that. This is a big, big topic. What does it mean to be converted? I know what it meant uh, as a child growing up in the 80s in an evangelical house. I mean, it was really pretty simple. It meant you prayed a prayer and that prayer felt kind of magic. And if you prayed the prayer, then you were in, you were converted and more importantly, you didn't have to worry about going to hell when you die. Right? And so it was pretty simple to know who was converted. Real Christians were the people that had prayed the prayer And if you hadn't, then you weren't. If you hadn't asked Jesus into your heart, then you weren't a Christian. And there wasn't really a whole lot else to it. I mean, if you prayed that prayer, then you met sort of the minimum entrance requirements for heaven, and the rest was sort of optional. You know, going to church, going to youth group, reading the Bible, giving to the poor, all of that stuff was just sort of extra credit. Now, let me be clear. It wasn't optional in my house growing up. If the church doors were open, the Peterson family was there, But generally speaking, you didn't have to do that stuff to be a Christian. You'd prayed the prayer, you were in, you were converted. But now when I think back to those friends of mine who were Christian, who went to my Christian school, I'm not sure how many, if any of them are even involved in Christianity at all now as adults. And I don't think that was just a child of the evangelical 80s thing. I talked to my dad the other day who was a child of the 50s and he prayed the prayer at a church camp when he was a kid because he didn't want to go to hell if he died. I mean, that was the, the motivation. But for some reason for him, it stuck. For some reason for him, it was very significant. He's never really turned back. But He was one of a whole bunch of kids that night who said yes to God. One of a bunch of whole, whole bunch of kids that got baptized and who now 60 years later don't really show any evidence of change, any evidence of Jesus being a part of their life at all. Now, I am not saying that praying a prayer is a bad thing. It's not, it's important. I think it's a crucial step in the journey, just like baptism we talked about a couple of weeks ago. It's crucial, but I am asking the question, why didn't it work for the others? Why didn't it stick? Why didn't real change take place in their lives? And if I'm honest, I don't think this is just a back then problem either. I mean, I look around at our world today and I see a whole lot of people who claim to be Christian, who claim to be converted, but their actions, their words, their social media posts, their hatred of the other side, their absolute terror in the face of a pandemic or in the face of an election that didn't turn out the way they wanted it to. None of that looks very converted. I mean, if this is the after picture of their conversion process, I hate to see the before photo. None of it looks very much like Jesus, and none of it, frankly, looks very different than the world around us. Where's the change, if we've been if we supposedly been converted, converted to what? If our faith doesn't actually equip us to love our enemies, to care more about the well-being of others than our own, to face pandemics with peace and politics as peacemakers, then what good is it? If we haven't been changed? Have we been converted? No matter what prayer we pray or whether we were baptized or confirmed or go to church every single Sunday, if our lives don't show evidence of change, then have we really been converted at all? Well, fortunately, the book of Acts has a lot to say on the subject. And you know what's interesting When you look at these very earliest Christians, they did look different, different from their previous lives, but but also different from the culture around them. They looked like Jesus. I mean, not perfectly. We have all these letters that Paul wrote to the churches and in them you see that these were very much like flesh and blood humans who stumbled and made mistakes and messed up, but you also see evidence of real life change. They did community so differently, cared for one another so differently, loved one another so differently. Their lives and their lifestyles were so radically changed that they earned themselves a nickname. Let's read Acts 11, starting in verse 25. Then Barnabas went on to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. Both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. Here's the point. It was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. It was in Antioch that they were given this nickname, the non-believers, the people of Antioch, called them Christians. According to the Zondervan Bible Dictionary, the word Christian is derived from the Greek word Christianos. And here's how it defines that. The Latin termination Ianos, widely used throughout the Roman Empire, often designated the slaves of the one with whose name it was compounded. Christian, this nickname, essentially meant like slaves of Christ, They looked so different that people had to come up with a whole new category for them, Christians. And those Christians changed the world. How did did they do it? I mean, what was different for them? Was it a different prayer? Did they do it somehow better than we did? Or what needs to change in our understanding, our practices, our relationships? You see, at ECC, we believe that conversion is, is a journey It's a process that has lots of significant milestones, lots of big yeses like praying a prayer or being baptized. But there's also lots of little yeses, little moments of turning to God and saying yes. There's a story in the 17th chapter of Acts that really, I think, illustrates this journey well, a journey that all of us, whether we know it or not, all of us are on the Apostle Paul had been traveling and preaching the gospel, and everywhere he went, people were being converted to Christianity. Well, not, not everyone. Uh, in fact, some of the most religious people were definitely not being converted. In fact, they were just angry. They literally were downright and angry, and Paul spends a couple of chapters of this book being snuck out of cities at night and being pursued from town to town by a group of religious people who wanted to kill him in the name of God. Finally, Paul ends up in Athens. Athens had been sort of this, the capital of world power as the Greek capital at one point in its life. The power of the world resided in Athens, but now Athens is just sort of a shadow of its former glory. Instead, Athens now thought of itself as, as sort of the intellectual capital of the world, where all the greatest minds and the newest, most profound philosophy of the world resided. And chapter 17 finds Paul right in the heart Of Athens. Let's read, starting in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. It's interesting to me that the author, Luke, having spent chapters talking about the Jewish reaction to the gospel message, Now says he talked to the Jews, he was in the synagogue, but he says nothing about the information on how they responded at all. Instead, he brings us out into the public square, out into the marketplace, a marketplace of wares, but also a marketplace, more importantly, of ideas. Keep reading. He also had a a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Wow, I don't know how many philosophy majors we have out there, but I'm guessing to many of us, that sounds pretty obscure, like Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. But essentially, these these were just sort of the two most common philosophies of the day. The Epicureans, in, in a nutshell, believed that the gods were far off if they existed at all. And they really weren't that interested in the real life lives of people here on earth, far away from where the gods were. There wasn't really any interaction or communication between the gods and humans. And so the point of life was just sort of to simply make the best of it to take as much pleasure as you possibly can from life. Well, I'll be honest, that that doesn't sound all that different, all that foreign. That sounds like what a lot of people believe today. If God exists, he is far away and he doesn't care about us. He's just sort of angry in heaven, right? And the point of life is just sort of to be happy and to get as much pleasure as you can before you die. The Stoics, conversely, believed that divinity was all around us and it lay within each human being. And we simply needed to find our inner divinity so that we could live a virtuous life. It was very intellectual. It was very rational. And that too does not sound a whole lot different than what a lot of my friends believe that are just sort of generally spiritual and they're trying to be good and virtuous people. That sounds like a lot of people in my world today. Let's keep reading. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said, he seems to be preaching about foreign gods. Now, on the face of that, that sounds like they're just curious. like, Oh, I wonder what this is about. But there's a veiled threat in this as well. N.T. Wright, his book, uh, Acts for Everyone, which is excellent. We highly would recommend getting that. It's cheap. It's an easy read, but it's, it's a great book. In that, he says this, The charge of preaching foreign divinities was the charge famously and classically on which Socrates, the greatest philosopher of all times, had been tried and condemned and eventually executed, right? So maybe they weren't so much curious, but Paul goes with them. He works with them. They bring Paul before the high council, which is filled with judges who would listen to Paul's words, hear his ideas, and then determine his future. Next verse. Then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You're saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as all the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. You can almost picture this group of guys that are just kind of hanging out at Starbucks, sipping their espressos and talking philosophy and real high-minded stuff. So Paul, next verse. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice you are very religious in every way. For as I, walk, as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. I think Paul is saying to them, but, but also to us, that we, we all worship something. We all say yes to something. Here, Paul is saying, I see you worship all kinds of things. I see your temples and your shrines. I see that you're very religious. I have to wonder if Paul were to walk around our cities watch our television, browse our internet history, I think think he would find all kinds of shrines and temples as well. They would look different. I mean, I think ours are are made of metal and glass on Wall Street. Ours look like stadiums and theaters. Our shrines, our temples are, are our buildings of government. Did you notice that on the coverage of the events of January 6th at the Capitol, commentators and politicians both repeatedly referred to the Capitol building as a temple of democracy. does that sound strange to you? I think Paul would find temples all over in our culture because we all worship something. We're all getting converted to something. Is it more and more like the world around us or is it more and more like Jesus? There's a place to write this in your notes. What we say yes to is what we're being converted to. What are you saying yes to in your life? Next verse, and one of your altars, Paul said, had an inscription on it to an unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. And that's what I was preaching about out in the, in, the, in the square, in the marketplace, this Jesus who's resurrected. This is the God that I've been telling you about. Let me tell you about him more. Verse 24, he is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. And human hands can't serve his needs for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything and he satisfies every need. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the world. He decided beforehand when they should rise and when they should fall. He determined their boundaries. He's saying this God is the only God. He is the only true king. He is Lord over all the nations. He is the reason Athens ever rose to power and he's the reason it fell he said his purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, though he's not far away from any of us. He's speaking directly to the Epicureans there. He's not some far away God, for in him we live and move and exist. There he's speaking to the Stoics. Yes, God is in us and we are in him. He is holding things together. He is sustaining and giving us life and breath. Everything is God. As some of your own poets have said, We are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen for gold and and silver or stone. This is really good news. This God who created everything, who rules over everything, who holds everything together, that God wants to be known. He's not some distant, far-off God who doesn't care about this world. And he's not some abstract force of rationality, uh, rational divinity that exists in all of us in the trees and the birds. God wants to be known. It's a place to write that in your notes. Next verse. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he proved to everyone who this is by raising him, that man, the one that I was talking about, from the dead. Remember now, Paul is literally standing in front of a court of judges who spend all their time philosophizing about ethics and religion. And Paul is saying that same God who created everything and rules everything and established the nations, the up and the down, He is the only true judge, and He will judge the world with justice. And that, friends, is good news. The perfect God who created all things and sustains all things is also the perfect judge who will judge the world and rule with perfect justice all things will be made right again. Jesus, who Paul had been telling them about, that's the man that God has appointed and proved it by raising Jesus from the dead. But there's something else that Paul is telling them, calling them to, and I think calling us to as well. Repentance. You see, real conversion requires repentance. Repentance is one of those kind of warm and fuzzy words that we like to hear, right? I think it's a word that has a lot of baggage around it. There's a lot of shame that we've piled onto that word. But what does it really mean? What does repentance mean biblically? In In the Bible, this idea of repentance, repentance from a biblical perspective simply means to turn, to turn from going one way and instead go another way. Paul even says it in that previous passage. He says, repent of their sins and turn to him. It means turning from a lot of the things in our lives that we're saying yes to and instead saying yes to God. In scripture, this idea of repenting is often described as turning from worshiping idols and instead worshiping God. And perhaps that language about idols also sort of feels foreign to us. But but if we're honest, I think a lot of us have got idols in our lives, our careers, our comfort, our security, our celebrity, our entertainment, our traditions, even our religion. Any one of those things can become an idol in our life anything to which we give our trust, our faith, our hope, our money, any of those things can become an idol if we allow them to, if we say yes to them over and over again. And anything from which we get our worth, our value, our hope, our future can be an idol if we say yes to it over and over again. I would argue that even the negative things in our lives can be idols. If we keep saying yes to them, the persistent fears, the anxiety over the future, the pain that was caused to us by people maybe years and years ago that we can't let go of, the addictions that we try to hide, those negative voices that keep us from feeling like we can ever really change. All of those things, as much as we hate them, can become idols if we keep listening to their voice, if we keep letting them change us and shape us and convert us into something so much less than what Jesus has for us. There's a story, or here's where I think the story really illustrates this journey that we're talking about. Starting in verse 32, when they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt, but others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them, but some joined him and became believers. Among them, were Dionysius, a member of the council, one of the judges, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. It says some mocked, some became curious, and some became Christians. And I think as we look at that story, I think probably all of us could see ourselves somewhere in those sort of three responses. I mean, let's let's just be honest with ourselves. Some of us are mockers. Some of us are laughing with contempt at the story of Jesus. It's a very popular thing to do right now. It's certainly the easiest response to Jesus to mock. But some of us are curious. Some of us want to lean in, want to learn more, want to begin to explore who this Jesus claims to be. And some of us are ready to say yes to Jesus right now, to take that big yes step to becoming a Christian, to say yes to this God who wants to be known, who is a perfect judge and who's made a way for us to know him. Say yes to Jesus, not only as savior to keep us from going to hell if we die, but also as Lord, the savior of our souls, but also the leader of our lives, the only true king. See, we have a continuum here at ECC that we use and it looks a little bit like this. We believe that everyone in this story that we just looked at but also everyone here in this room and everyone watching this online, all of us are somewhere on this continuum of relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Some of us are not interested. Some of us are, are curious, like, like the this, like this story. We want to know more. Some of us are Christians. And some of us are actually becoming more and more like Christ, more Christ-like. Where are you at on this continuum? What's your next Yes. There's a place to write that in your notes. Maybe it's time to get curious or get curious again. Maybe it's time to repent or to repent again, to say yes to God or or say yes again. You see, this continuum, as much as it looks like it, it's not linear. Really, any, any point, at any point when we stop saying yes to God, effectively, we're moving back to not interested We're moving back to saying, I'm not interested in in growing. I'm not interested in becoming more like Christ. I'm not interested in anything more than sort of those minimum entrance requirements to get me into heaven. If we're not saying yes to God, then effectively, we're saying no. Not interested. What's your answer? What's your next yes? Or your next no, your next not interested See, we, we want to invite you into this journey to continue this journey or, or invite you back into the journey. Get curious, say yes to Jesus. What's your next yes? Maybe your next yes is to pray a prayer, acknowledging to God that you've not been interested, but you want to be. To, to stir that kind of curiosity in you. Or maybe the, it's a prayer of saying, Jesus, I, I want you to be Lord and Savior of my life. I want to repent of the sin that's in my life and turn to you. If that's where you're at, say that yes today. Or maybe you become a Christian your next yes is to get baptized. We'd love to help you with that. Say yes to that today. Or maybe you've been at this whole Christian thing for a very long time, and you're realizing that you're just sort of coasting, going through the motions, and you've stopped even looking for opportunities to say yes to God. Maybe your next yes needs to be to confess that to God, repent of that, to say, God, I've moved into the place of not interested and I wanna be, I want to be interested. Ask God to make you curious again. Whatever your next yes is, we'd love to help you with that. Talk to one of us, send me or anybody on staff that you feel comfortable with. Send us an email letting us know what your next yes is and we'd love to walk with you in that to help support you in that yes. Let's go back to the text for just a minute. It's interesting that Luke, the author, includes the names of two converts, Dionysius, a powerful man, a judge, and then a woman, which is significant in and of itself, named Damaris. You know, neither of them is mentioned again anywhere in the Bible, but church history tells us that Damaris, the woman, went on to become a saint in the early church and is celebrated to this day in the Greek Orthodox Church. She continued to grow. She became more and more like Christ. Dionysius and his family were baptized. They said yes. They were baptized in AD 52. And he went on to become the first bishop of Athens, dedicating his life to pursuing Christ and eventually became a martyr for Christ. Friends, unchanged people don't become martyrs. He said yes to God and then kept saying yes. He experienced conversion and then continued to be converted by the Holy Spirit and work in him. So what happened to my friends? What happened to my dad's friends, those boys at camp? I think at some point they stopped saying yes. At some point they moved back to not interested. What's your next yes? You see, because as we say yes to God, yes to the Holy Spirit, yes to Jesus, both as Savior and as Lord we begin to continue that journey towards becoming more and more like Christ, more and more converted. You see, because real conversion results in real change. Let me pray for us. Jesus Christ, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these stories of imperfect people who you converted, who experienced the kind of life that we want for ourselves and for our world. Holy Spirit, right now in this moment, I ask you to to reach into my life and the lives of everyone hearing these words. Show us where we are at on that journey, on that continuum. Stir in us a curiosity to know you, whether we've become Christians or not, a desire, a hunger, a thirst for you. Change us. We ask you in the name of Jesus. Amen.